Well, once again, we're grateful to have uh, Greg Kokel uh, come and share with us the second part of the message. I'm looking forward. I hope you enjoyed the first part. We will have a Q&A time again after this session. And if you have something that you uh, want to ask, you can either write it down on a piece of paper or raise your hand later on about uh, anything. He does a lot of Q&A, especially on his uh, radio show. And so hope that you will um, stock up on those. This is a great opportunity. So let's give him a warm welcome as he comes forward. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody asked me uh, during the break uh, or in between sessions, uh, why did I take so long to have kids? And uh, the reason I took so long to have kids, have kids is because I took so long to get married. I got married four days before my 48th birthday. And then the person I was talking to said, there's hope for our pastor. <laughs> And, and I said, I said, you mean your pastor's not married? And they said, no, he's not married. And I thought, no wonder he's always smiling. <laughs> you know, in anticipation. <laughs> oh, what do you got? Oh, my goodness. You'll get your you'll get yeah, you'll get your turn, son. You'll get I tell you, when I, when I got married, I grew up a lot more than I was. And uh, it is something about taking responsibility for, well, of course, if you're a pastor, you've got a family already, so you know, you're already doing that. But just speaking for myself, it really made a difference in my own life. Um, marriage civilizes men, you know, or maybe it's better to put it this way, women civilize, wives civilize men, but I think men need to be restrained in their vigor by responsibility, and families give them that responsibility, or a church family gives the responsibility as well, so uh, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I have been campaigning here uh, for a different way of looking at the biblical enterprise of communicating the gospel to the world. And insofar as this is a job of the church and we are individually members of the church, then we individually participate in this enterprise. I talked about a change that that took place for me in the way I viewed this. And instead of looking at myself as an evangelist or doing acts of evangelism, I began to look at myself as an ambassador because an ambassador is another biblical term. There's a biblical motif there. And it helped me because it shifted my focus from the end game to the process. It shifted my focus from trying to close the deal to nurturing a person closer to that point where they would make uh, a commitment for Christ. And um, now whenever I say this, um, I, 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 it, it sometimes can be misunderstood. The way I put it, and, and it was truthful the way I put it, I never have it as a goal to, to win someone to Christ. And in fact, I never have it as a goal. Thank you, Pastor. Deer in the headlights. I never have it as a goal to... Uh, 
uh, to even necessarily get at the foot of the cross. But I gave you the reasons why that in the context of our culture right now, there are, you, you've got to move more slowly to be able to communicate the message accurately. That's a simple way to put it. My goal in conversations, and it's a goal that I suggested for you, is to, is to just try to put a stone in people's shoe, give them something to think about. And this is meant to take some of the pressure off of you so that if you think you have to get to the you know, sign of the dotted line phase, maybe you're not even going to get into play. But if you think, gee, I don't have to get them to sign on the dotted line, maybe I can just help out a little and move them forward, well, then you feel more comfortable with that, and then you get into play more frequently, and therefore the cause of the communication of the gospel goes forward better than if we are told we got to get to the foot of the cross in the conversation and then we don't talk at all. Or we get so pushy that we make a negative impact and we don't take the time that's necessary for that person to work through the issues. Now, I told you about Holly Ordway, O-R-D-W-A-Y, and I hope some of you read her book, uh, Not God's Type, because um, for her to become a Christian, given where she was at, it took, I think, about two years. And she was one to Christ broadly, basically, through her fencing instructor. And her fencing instructor was not just a, a, a very thoughtful Christian, but he was a stand-to-reason guy, as it turns out. Now, this just, I didn't know this until I interviewed her. But he lives down in San Diego, and he used the method, in a sense, that we, that is, you spend time, and over time, he's a teacher there, and he was a hard teacher, and he demanded excellence from her as a, as a, as a fencer. And he earned her respect, and in the process was able to slowly get into conversations with her about Christ. But she said, he never, ever pushed me. He just gave me enough to think about, and then she progressed slowly. Now, what was his goal for, for, uh, for her? His goal for her was that she become a Christian, of course. But he was willing to pace himself so that the steps forward that she makes were, were solid and sure steps and, and it wasn't a quick decision where you get a false conversion. Um, and so, so that's a little bit behind the idea here. And maybe I could just give you an illustration because I had some conversation with some, uh, some folks just to, meant to clarify. They asked questions about this and meant to clarify. Now, you bought a new piece of property, right? And it's a fixer-upper. So I imagine a lot of you folks are going to show up at the church to help fix her up, right, at different times. Now, what is the goal that you have as a group? Well, it's to deliver a finished product. It's to, it's to get the, the church building in ship shape and to get it to, uh, together and whatever. But when you go to work in a work party, you don't say, I'm going down to the church to finish the job. You say, I'm going down to church as part of the team to help out. And I don't know what I'm going to do today. So maybe you're laying bricks or maybe you're sweeping up debris or maybe you're painting something or maybe you're putting on woodwork or whatever it is. You're just doing your part as part of a team to move the whole thing forward. Now, it might turn out that you show up on, on a day and you're going there to help out to make the contribution you're able to make, but you're almost done with the job. You didn't know that. It's your first time you volunteered, maybe you're out of town or you couldn't help out. You say, I'm here to help out. And, and they say, we're almost done. We're putting on the last coat of paint. Pick up a brush, a roller, and once we're done, we're finished. So you enter the process at the end, and you get to put the finishing touches on. Well, the same thing is true 
with the church, I think, and the gospel. We are all part of a team. We all have a contribution to make. And we are going out in individuals' lives and we are putting some bricks down and clearing up some debris and uh, putting up some wood, you know, here and there, helping out in that person's life. And some of us may show up in that person's life at the last stage where we put the final coat of paint on and you're done, and that's the harvester. But we're all part of it. The goal is still exactly the same. I'm not saying don't preach the gospel. I'm saying that getting to the gospel in every conversation is not the best way to get the big job done in our culture now of helping a person move to the point of making a commitment to Jesus Christ. There was a time when there was, you know, all that extra work didn't need to be done, but this is not that time. The culture used to be a Christian culture in a certain sense, properly qualified. No longer a Christian culture. A lot of speakers have labeled it as a post-Christian culture. Uh, a couple of months ago, I heard Sean McDowell, the apologist, uh, uh, Josh's son. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy and a fabulous speaker, too. Um, I heard him say, we're not in even a post-Christian culture anymore. We are in an anti-Christian culture. And that requires a very different approach for us as ambassadors for Christ. And so I am trying to offer you a way of approaching this. If this isn't helpful to you, you have another system, you're more aggressive, then fine. Find a way that honors God, that, that meets the need for your personality. There's a whole lot of people, though, that the aggressive approach is not going to work for them. They're just not going to get in play. So I'm telling you there's a way you can play. You don't have to swing for the fences. You don't have to get a home run. You don't even have to get on base. You just have to get in the batter's box. If I can give you some tools to get you in the batter's box, then we can let the Lord take it from there, and then you'll be surprised at where he goes with it. Now, the tools that I'm talking about is a game plan. If our goal is to just move the person along, what I call putting a stone in their shoe, how do we do that? How do we, how do we manage that in conversations? And I, I made a promise to you. I said, I'm going to give you a game plan that's going to allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know or how aggressive the other person happens to be. And it's a simple plan, and it follows Paul's advice to be wise with outsiders and, and uh, know how to respond to each person, yet speak with grace and make the best use of the opportunities that you have. Okay? This plan is a three-part plan, and it uses a tactical approach that is meant to put you in the driver's seat of the conversation. So this is all review that I'm doing right now. That's all I'm doing is bringing us back up to speed. Um, and the way that I found that is the most efficient and effective and relaxing and fun and enjoyable and effective of putting you in the driver's seat, getting you the information you need, and challenging the non-Christian in an artful way is to use questions. And I call that the Colombo tactic after Lieutenant Colombo. So we've done all of that now. I've suggested in this game plan, which is a question-asking game plan, that there are three different uses of questions, and each use of questions is a step in the game plan. And the first use of questions is to gather information. To gather information. All right? And we are, you pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> or that baby behind the curtain. <clears throat> the first use of Columbo is to gather information. And you gather information by using some form of the question what? Question. 
What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Very, very flexible question, very broad application. You Just draw the person out. That's really what you're after. But you especially want to use the question, what do you mean by that, when there are some kind of particularly um, spiritual conversation or comment made or a challenge that's made. Lots of times the challenges trade on vagueness. Everything's relative. Well, wait, what exactly are you saying? How do you respond to that? Well, you don't know how to respond unless you make the person be more precise. And in the process of, of requesting that the person give you more information, the person themselves may be aware that they haven't actually thought about this very much. And uh, gee, what do I mean? And I have been in so many situations where somebody's putting up all of this bluster against Christianity, and they're so confident and whatever. And so you pause and you just ask them a question for the sake of clarification regarding what they're saying, and all the wind goes out of their sails, which is evidenced, not always, but lots of time. And it's evidenced to me that they're just, they're just running through their slogans, and they haven't really worked through the concept. Because had they worked through it and thought about it a little bit, they'd be able to articulate it a little bit better. So um, the first step is to gather information. And like I said, you may even spend most of your conversation, at least initially, just gathering information. Somebody called me once on the radio and asked me, what's a good uh, book on Buddhism? So I asked the person, well, why do you want a book on Buddhism? Note, by the way, that that's a what do you mean by that kind of question, isn't it? I'm gathering more information. How can I properly advise this person if I'm not clear on what they're trying to accomplish? So I said, why do you want a book on Buddhism? He said, well, I have a Buddhist who is at work that I work with, and I don't know anything about Buddhism, and so I thought if I'd read a book, then I'll be better equipped to share my convictions with him. Now, that's a good idea. I mean, it's good that he wants to be better equipped, but it's a bad idea to read a book to be able to share with your Buddhist friend because you've got to buy it. It costs money, and you've got to read it. It takes time, and chances are, third, it won't be the kind of Buddhism your American Buddhist uh, believes in anyway, because, you know, Americans are all goofy. They're just like a um, smorgasbord religion, you know, a little of this, a little of that. So anyway, I, I, I said, here, I have a better suggestion. Save your money, grab your friend, take him down to the local watering hole, whatever he likes, take him to a Starbucks, whatever, buy him a latte, and say to him, look, it, I understand you're a Buddhist. Yeah, that's right. I, I don't know any Buddhists. I don't know anything about Buddhism. I'm a Christian. I'm really interested in what Buddhism is. Could you tell me? Now, that's a what do you mean by that question, right? So what is the Buddhist going to do in a situation like that? Do you think he's going to be offended? You think he's going to be bugged? No, of course not. He's going to be flattered. And then he's going to tell you all about it. He's going to sit back and suck up his latte and give you an education on his Buddhism. And so you're getting the Buddhism of the guy that you want to talk with in the process of building a very friendly relationship with him. Now, I said in, this, in the midst of it, don't jump down his throat after 10 minutes and say, well, I'm a Christian, here's what that's all about. You know, if you've listened carefully and you try to understand his point of view, chances are pretty good that he's going to ask you to return the favor and tell you about your own convictions. But it'll give you a foundation. Now, you've won some respect. You've built a bridge. And that's the value of using that approach, that first question. You get a free education. 
You know, a lot of folks are afraid to talk to non-Christians, and I understand that. You know, they think, oh, they're so smart, they're so wise, they're so clever, they're, they don't believe what, they're going to put me down, and all this other stuff. And so they don't, because they're frightened of the non-Christian, they don't talk with the non-Christian. Now, I've done debates with some pretty um, significant luminaries, like uh, Deepak Chopra, for example, who's the number one new age guru in the world, and I did a one-hour TV debate with him. I did a three-hour radio debate with Michael Shermer. And uh, Michael Shermer's a prominent American atheist, a skeptic magazine editor, and uh, these things were nerve-wracking for me to do. And when I prepared for Michael Shermer's debate, I, I, um, I, had, to, <laughs> I had to read his book uh, to, to get, to get I, I, don't, I was familiar with this stuff, but to prepare for a debate with him, head to head, face to face, he sat next to me in the radio studio. Then I had to know his stuff. Uh, and so I read his book and I had listened to other radio debates that he'd done. But I want to tell you something. Every time I heard his voice, it grated on me. I opened his book. I didn't want to see what he had to say because I was like a lot of other Christians who think, gee, I don't want to see what he's got there. Maybe he's got something I can't deal with. Then what will happen? You know, then I'll lose my faith and that'll be the end of the world. <laughs> so we get so nervous about this. And so it was psychologically difficult for me to engage his ideas. All right. But I'm going to have to gauge the guy on national radio, I better start now. And I learned something from that process. The first time I listened to this one radio debate he did, I listened to the whole thing. And it was painful. I listened to it a second time. One so bad. I listened to it a third time. And I thought, this guy's not that tough. His ideas aren't that good. And I'm reading through the book and I'm going, oh my gosh, this is what, he, he got this published? <laughs> It was stunning to me to see the stuff. Now, here's the principle. The closer you get to your adversary, the less frightening they become. The closer you get to your adversary, and we do have an adversarial relationship with a non-Christian. I'm encouraging a friendly engagement, but they have opposing views. So there is an adversary there, but the closer we get to them, the more we get to know them, the, way, the more we let them talk and we listen to them, the less frightening they become. And if you're kind of new to this and you listen to an atheist spouting off and you say, well, he still sounded pretty frightening, all that stuff he said, well, just write down his points. Well, what was it that he actually said? What do you mean by that? That's what we're doing here. We're assessing his, his main point was this, 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 and this. Okay, write it down. And then you take them one by one. And you assess them. You can go to our website, str.org. You can go to other websites that we're connected with. You might know about uh, <clears throat> reasonablefaith.org, William Lane Craig's site. Um, but there's lots of places out there where you can get good answers. And just check them out. And when you take a person's rant and you break it down to individual points, and then you just deal with each point one by one, it makes the job a lot easier. And you will be amazed at how bad the thinking is on the other side. It is uniformly bad. And I'm not saying that as a condescension or looking down my nose at them or an ad hominem or something. I'm saying that descriptively, my experience with those arguments is this is what I discovered. Now, maybe I've got more training. I can see things that you don't see, but you can learn it too. Just you got the rest of your life, for goodness sake, if you pursue it one by one. The point I'm making here is the more we know about the other side, by and large, the less frightening they become. 
you know about the other side by asking them questions. What do you mean by that? So your first simple question is meant to give you an education that helps you to see the lay of the land. And once you see the lay of the land, then you know how, what to do. You know, I was reading recently about the Battle of Midway and uh, the Second World War, and it was a turning point in the Pacific Theater for the naval battle. And you've got all of these, uh, you've got the American fleet and you have the Japanese fleet. They had four flat tops. They had four um, um, aircraft carriers. And I think we only had three, and one was kind of hobbling out of Pearl Harbor, the Yorktown. And, and the thing is, is that what was mysterious about this whole thing is, is you don't know where the other guy is. And so they're drifting around, and they got recon planes going out, and they're trying to find out where, where the other guy is. And in the Battle of Midway, no ship ever saw any other ship. And nobody even saw Midway Island. You know, it was all these individuals, air battle mostly, all these planes bombing and everything. It's a fascinating thing. But once you know where the other guy is, you know how to direct your forces. Until then, you're just, just going blind. And by the same token, if you spend a lot of time just drawing a person out instead of thinking, how can I get the, squeeze the gospel in here? Then you are going to actually have a, a much clearer understanding of the lay of the land so that you are able when the time is more appropriate to communicate the gospel more effectively in that situation. Does that make sense to you? Okay? So that brings us up to speed here. I want to talk about the second application of Colombo. The first one is to gather information. We use the question, what do you mean by that? Here's the second application. Now I'm going to use a phrase that maybe you've heard before, but you're not entirely exactly precise on what it means. The second application of Colombo is to reverse the burden of proof. Reverse the burden of proof, okay? Reverse the burden of proof. Now, let me ask you a question. Audience participation time. Somebody tell me, raise your hand, tell me what the word or phrase burden of proof refers to. Don't tell me who bears it necessarily, but who, what does it refer to? Burden of proof. Yes? Pardon me? Okay, uh, use another word besides prove in your definition of burden of proof. So, Show evidence. Show evidence. Perfect. Coming from a husky. Perfect. <laughs> um, burden of proof is a responsibility to give evidence. Okay? Now, who is it that bears that responsibility in any exchange or conversation? Who bears, who has the responsibility to give evidence? What did I hear? Somebody raise your hand. Yes, sir. Well, the prosecutor. Now, in legal things, that's true. Why is the prosecutor responsible to give the burden of proof? Because they're making the charge. He did it. Oh, yeah, prove it. So the person who makes the claim bears the burden. The person who makes the claim bears the burden. Now, this is especially true if the claim is something controversial. So if there is a claim that is made that is controversial, then the person who makes the claim has a responsibility to give some reason or rationale why we should take the claim seriously. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Because in the second step, we're going to reverse the burden of proof on the person who makes the claim. 
In conversations about spiritual things, people who disagree often will just make statements. Everything's relative. Okay? And think that if they make the statement, then their job is done. They've won because they've just said this. Well, everything's relative. Well, the Bible's just a bunch of fables. Well, Jesus didn't work any miracles. They just put that stuff in 300 years later. Okay, so these are the kinds of things that people will say. All right, fair enough. Now we understand their, and we might ask more questions about what do you mean by that, to get clear on their claim. But it is not enough just for them to make a claim. They have to do better than that. When we let that, what happens is the Christian will hear, well, everything's relative. And then, like the student who asked me, how do I refute that? They take it upon themselves to do the heavy lifting to show the other guy wrong. And they've given the other guy a free ride. And so this second step of the Colombo tactic is to prevent them from getting off with just saying whatever they want, and then it's our job to try to show them where they're wrong. No, they're not gonna, we're not going to let them have a free ride. In the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, <laughs> they got a lot of splaining to do, you know that? They got a lot of splaining to, the, to, to do themselves. Now, you're saying, who is Ricky Ricardo? Desi Arnaz, you know, uh, Lucy, you cannot be on the show, that guy, okay? I should have some SpongeBob illustrations, probably. <laughs> I don't even know who SpongeBob is, actually. I just say so. So we are going to, we are we are going to we are going to be alert in our conversations for when the other person makes a claim. All right, when he says something so, especially if it's controversial. Now, I had the atheist uh, that called me three weeks ago, and when uh, I gave him the argument for the existence of immaterial things, he's, he asked me, how can an immaterial thing move a material thing? How can a soul move a body? How does that happen? Well, the, here's the answer. It's very simple. I have not the foggiest idea, but I know what happens. Watch. My soul is moving my body. I don't have to know how it happens in order to know that it happens. And he said, do you remember what he said? He said, that's contradictory. Now, a contradiction is a very particular thing. It isn't like, it isn't just, I don't get it, so it's contradictory. It's A is not, A, a, a equals not A. That's what a contradiction is, you know. He, he's right and he's wrong at the same time. And that's a contradiction, that's crazy. Uh, God is good and loving and powerful, but there's evil in the world. A lot of people think that's a contradiction, so God doesn't exist. So, so what I said wasn't a contradiction at all. He just said it was so. So I asked him more about that. I wasn't going to let him just get away with declaring this thing. It turns out he didn't know what he was talking about when it comes to contradiction. I didn't beat him up. I wasn't mean to him or anything like that. I just walked him through this. And there are people who do this all the time. And so what we're not going to let people do is make grandiose claims about spiritual things and then not require an accounting from them. We are not going to take the burden of proof on our shoulders when somebody else is making the claim. 
I had a, uh, a, a phone, I was on a station in Southern California, uh, KFI, a secular station, and um, I was there for doing an interview and um, taking calls from the secular audience on the issue of intelligent design versus evolution. And um, there was a caller who called in and was taking exception with my view by invoking Big Bang cosmology. You know, well, a Big Bang proves you're wrong or whatever. Now, I know there are controversy in, in Christian circles about this, you know, and I don't want to stir anything up, but I'll just say for myself, I'm not the least bit troubled about a Big Bang. And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. If there was a Big Bang, then there had to be a Big Banger. Someone had to pull the trigger, okay? Now, most audiences think that's really, really funny. Big Bang needs a Big Banger. Since you don't think it's very funny, you don't like the Big Bang. I know that already, so you guys are not in favor of that idea. But I'll tell you who believes in the Big Bang. It's the guy you're talking to. And that's my point right now. He believes in the Big Bang, and the Big Bang could easily be construed as the creation moment. It's consistent with that, at least. It's not consistent with the young earth, I understand that. But it certainly is consistent with the creation moment. And so this is the point I want to make to him. A Big Bang needs a Big Banger. If you believe in a Big Bang, you don't get something from nothing. Now, he's taken exception with me in this, and he's going to say, oh, yeah, you can bit something from nothing. So here's what he said, and I, took, I, I taped the interview, and so I got his words. He said this, well, I don't think it is, because you could start with a base of nothing, and you could say that there was nothing but an infinite continuous moment, and then one tiny little insignificant thing happened. A point happened in the nothingness. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? How do you get a point in the nothing? Maybe it's a really small point, so it's easier. I don't know. But anyway, so, but he kept going. He says, and then the point expanded, which is extremely simple. <laughs> Requires no intelligence. It's a nice thing about radios. People can't see your face when you're going, oh. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. No, I'm just joking. I just listened to what he had to say. But it is, it is kind of amazing when you listen to the words. It's extremely simple. It requires no intelligence, so no intelligent God had to intervene. All we need is a little tiny imperfection in the perfect nothingness. And that imperfection expanded, became variegated, and increasingly complex, and soon you had galaxies and planets kind of spinning out of this. So apparently his, his view was that you first start with nothing. And if you talk with people on this particular issue, they always talk about nothing as if it were something, something. every single Time. First, just start with a perfect nothing. What do you mean perfect nothing? <laughs> nothing is universal negation. So you can't have an adjective describing it. You know what I'm saying? It can't be perfect. Well, you got some perfect nothing, and then you got some imperfect nothings. Then you got half a nothing, then multiple nothings. You know, it's, nothing is nothing. <laughs> but anyway, per, you have this nothing, and then you have this speck of something. He didn't say where it came from, but it came, then it falls into the pond of nothing, and it really annoys the pond, and the pond starts bugging and weaving and starts spitting out planets. And he thinks it's extremely simple and requires no intelligence. And there is a certain sense in which he's right about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to answer this question. And, um, uh, and, and I'm thinking, is this guy on drugs or what? You know, this is Los Angeles, right? So... Uh, <laughs> But I pointed out to him, I said, it's interesting the way you started what you said. You started by saying you could say that, and then you told your story. I said, you're right. You can say anything you want. 
but, but giving reasons why we should take seriously the story you just told. That's another matter entirely. That's your job. It isn't my job to disprove this. It is, it's your job to give reasons for it. And most of what he says is largely incoherent. Perfect nothingness, a little speck of something comes into the nothing, and that requires no intelligence. No God had to intervene. It's very easy. Then, boom, all these galaxies go there. Yeah, it's fine if you're writing fantasy stories. But if you're talking about reality, then you have to get down to details and facts, and that's a different matter entirely. The other guy's got to do more than tell a bedtime story meant to put your own view to sleep. He's got to give reasons, and this is the second step. We just request of that person reasons for their view. So... When somebody makes a claim, we are going to reverse the burden of proof, and we reverse the burden of proof by asking the question, now how did you come to that conclusion? Now how did you come to that conclusion? And what this does is it, is, is it stops, it, it, it forces the person to take their story and, makes, and, 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 and defend it to take their story and defend it. Um, you will be amazed at how many people think that all they have to do is tell a story and they're done. You know what a gauntlet is, right? When they say they throw the gauntlet into the arena, what's a gauntlet? You mean glove? Yeah, it's a medieval glove. When they say they throw the gauntlet into the arena, what does that signify? A challenge, right. Can you imagine if the knight threw his gauntlet into the arena and then said, I win? I'm going ha home and having a chalice of wine, you know, and celebrate my victory. And the other guys are standing around saying, what do you mean you win? You just got in the game. Now you got to put up or shut up. Now you got to show what you got. Now you got to fight and see if you're up to it. The same thing here. You'll be amazed at how many people who will say things like this. They'll say in discussions about spiritual matters, Christianity, oh, I can explain that. I can explain that. It happened yesterday on the airplane. I can explain that. I ask, how do you get all of these left-handed amino acids, and you need thousands of them even for a simple protein? How do you get all of those? It's like, by chance, it's like flipping heads a thousand times in a row without one mistake. How, how, how do you get that? And he said, well, if you have enough time, you can do it. Well, this is why I asked him, have you done the math? Because he's imagining, yeah, it's easy. I can explain that. You just have lots and lots of time. You don't have enough time to do this. You don't have enough reagents in the universe to accomplish this task. When you think of all the molecules in the whole universe and the amount of time that they say we have, three and a half billion years or whatever it happens to be, you can't do it. The math doesn't allow it. It's just not going to happen. It's an impossibility. But see, he just told the story, and that's all he needed. You know, yeah, I, gotta, I can explain that. You got a lot of opportunities, and sooner or later you're going to get it. It's like uh, monkeys banging away at a typewriter long enough, they're going to produce the works of Shakespeare. This is nonsense. And so what we are, what we are going to do here at this particular point is we're going to ask for their justification. Now, how did you come to that uh, conclusion? We are not going to let them simply give an alternate explanation. Because you have to have more than just a good imagination. 
in order to, 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 to enter into an intelligent discussion here. By the way, these same rules apply to Christians. These same rules apply to Christians. If you're going to make your case for Christ, somebody's going to ask you the question, now how did you come to that conclusion? They're going to ask you, what do you mean by that? Then how do you come to that conclusion? And if you're not prepared, you won't be able to answer, you, you won't be able to rise to the occasion. Now, being prepared takes time. It's a, it's a long-term process. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by that. What I want you to see is we can put the questioning uh, uh, um, shoe on the other foot, our foot. We can be the one who asks the questions and then make them answer when they're obliged to, given the conversation. They make the claim. They answer the challenge. Now, I want you to be, beware of what's called what I call the professor's ploy. Let me pause for just a second. Are we, uh, how are we doing here? I, I'm talking really fast because I'm looking at the clock, but I don't want to leave anybody behind. Are we doing okay with this concept of when they make the claim, then we're not going to get bowled over. We're not going to try to disprove them. We're just going to calmly ask them what their reasons are, okay? And then see what they have to say. Uh, a lot of times they have nothing to say. You get Simon and Garfunkel again. It's amazing. And I've had, a, I've had a number of times where somebody has said to me after they, I've said, now, how'd you come to that conclusion? What are your reasons for that? They're thinking and they're thinking. And finally I said, well, you know, I don't have any reasons for that. I don't have any reasons for that. And I'm thinking, how can you have a conviction about something that you hold really strongly? You have no reasons for it. Well, that's what I ask them. I say, well, why would you believe something you have no reasons to believe? That's another question, right? You know what they say? I don't have a reason for that either. <laughs> it's amazing. So the professor's ploy um, describes the circumstances where professors in classrooms take advantage of their position of authority to beat up on Christians and Christianity. And this happens all over the place, top to bottom, all around the country. Um, in the, certainly in the university system, okay? And some of them will say, how many Christians in my class here, first day of class? Uh, you won't be a Christian when I get finished with you. Their goal is to destroy Christians, okay? And incidentally, for you parents and grandparents, just keep this in mind when you're shucking out the big bucks to have this sophisticated status sticker on the back of your car like Harvard, that you are paying professors an unbelievable price to destroy the convictions of your children. That's what's happening. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to succeed, but a lot of them do. And that's what they're after. And that's what you're sending them into. And it's not just Harvard. It's all over the country, all right? And so in a situation like this, I'll just you know, be, be forewarned. Um, in a situation like this, um, you will have, like the, the professor will say, well, the Bible is just a bunch of fable, fables. And the, you'll have a Christian in the audience who will uh, not want to take this lying down. And so they'll raise their hand and they'll get up and then they'll take the professor on head to head on the issue. Now, I think this is right hearted. I understand the motivation, but I think it's wrong headed. All right. Because it violates a basic rule of engagement. And that rule is you never make a frontal assault on a superior force in an entrenched position. 
I mean, this is suicide. This is Pickett's charge kind of stuff. You know, this, you don't want to do that, okay? Now, I'm not saying that you disengage necessarily. What I'm su suggesting is that if you use your tactical approach, a superior tactical approach can defeat, you can have a smaller unit defeat a superior power. I mean, good tactics. So, if you were a student in a classroom like that and the professor was making these kinds of statements, what question might come to mind that you might raise your hand and ask of the professor at this point? What question might come to mind? What first Columbo question might occur to you? What do you mean by that? Oh, that's great. What do you mean by that? Sure. By the way, is that uh, an, a, a challenge to his authority? No, you're a student. That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing, asking questions. Duh, uh, I don't get it yet, professor. What do you mean by that? You draw him out, right? Okay, fine. Uh, after he's explained his point more clearly, what second question might come to mind that you might raise your hand and ask? How did you come to that conclusion? Of course. Now, if you've done that just a bit, your, your professor may figure out that you're a Christian and you're sandbagging, you know, and you're kind of hiding behind the question. So the professor might call you out. And this happens. And the professor will say, well, you must be one of those Christians who believes that the Bible's not a bunch of fables, it's the Word of God. <laughs> All right, well, look at I got a few minutes here. Uh, I'm a fair guy. Why don't you stand up and explain to the rest of the class why you think I'm wrong and the Bible's the inspired Word of God. Go ahead. Now, what has the professor just done? He's reversed the burden of proof. He's put the burden of proof on the Christian. And why is that illicit or inappropriate in the scenario I just described? Because the Christian didn't what? Make any claim. Who made the claim? The professor made the claim, not the Christian. The Christian's just asking a question. When you're asking a question, you're not making a claim. And if you're not making a claim, you bear no responsibility to give reasons, right? What the professor has done is made the claim, and then he's reversed the burden of proof and said, you disprove me. In that situation, don't take the bait. You might say to the professor something like, well, professor, wait a minute. You, you don't know what I believe because I've never said anything about what I believe. And it hardly matters because you're the teacher. I'm the student. I'm just trying to understand what you believe and why you believe it. That's all. Trying to get an education. Unless you want us all to take what you say just totally on faith. No, don't say that. <laughs> you see the point that I'm making. Don't allow yourself to be drawn in here. You don't have to be. You say, wait a minute. I, I'm not in play here. I'm just learning. I'm just asking questions. And I've done this before where I've gotten into uh, conversations with people. And I'm laying low and I'm gathering information like crazy. I'm trying to figure out what do they mean and why do they believe it and this, all this stuff. And then they start, oh, hey, you're one of those guys who this, that, you're a Christian. You think such and so. And they're making all these assumptions. I mean, just like that guy did yesterday. Well, you know, he started going after the Bible. I said, wait a minute, I didn't bring the Bible up. I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the evidence. You know, and, uh, you know, he had he ate just a little bit of humble pie in that moment. I wasn't trying to make him look foolish. He just realized, OK, well, I'm going to have to I, I'm going to have to actually deal with the issue here instead of. Uh, but uh, I've been in circumstances like that. And, and uh, um, you know, and, and I and 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 I say to him, look, at, I haven't even said anything about what I believe. 
Um, this wasn't yesterday, but in other circumstances, I haven't said anything about it. I'm just asking questions. You don't know what I believe because I haven't said it. I'm just asking questions. But I was making progress with the questions I was asking. Okay? So now we have two steps in Colombo. We have uh, the, the step where you use questions to gather information. We have a step where you lose, use questions to reverse the burden of proof. By the way, how much do you have to know in order to um, gather information with questions? Nothing. Nada. Nix. Nyet. How do you say it in Chinese? Bo yeah. Bo yeah? Mo. Mo yeah. Nada. You don't have to know mo yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> All right. Uh, how, many, how much you got to know to say, now how'd you come to that conclusion? Mo yeah. Mo yeah. Okay, see? It's easy. All right? Now, do you think if there's some guy that you're, person, guy, gal, whatever that you're talking to, and, you, and you're, they're smart, and they're articulate, and they're energetic, and they're loud, and they're aggressive, and everything, can you a ask him the question, what do you mean by that? Can you ask them the question, how'd you come to that conclusion? Could you keep doing that with this person and gathering all kinds of information? Do you think you could have a conversation with that person using these questions? Do you think you can use these questions to be comfortable in navigating in any conversation, no matter how little you know or how much the other guy knows? What am I getting at? I just fulfilled my promise to you, didn't I? I promised that I would give you a technique that will allow you to do that, and I've just done it. Because this is easy for anyone to do. These two steps are easy, all right? Now, let me give you one more uh, virtue of these two questions. And I call it, I'm call this getting out of the hot seat. Now, the hot seat is where you find yourself when you are, say, talking to somebody and you are... Uh, you're talking to somebody, and you're kind of in persuasion mode. You're offering your own views, so you're out there making points. And it turns out that the person that you're talking to ends up knowing a whole lot more about the issue than maybe you do, you know. Maybe they, they just, or they've done a lot of reading. You, you realize in the conversation that you're outmatched a little bit. Maybe they're not being a steamroller and rolling over the top of you, but, they're, but they're, they're, you just think, oh, I cannot deal with this. Now he's raising issues, and I don't know how to. He's a scientist. Oh, my gosh. How did I get myself into this conversation? Where's the door? And you're at 30,000 feet. You know, it's, it's a long drop. <laughs> so that's the hot seat, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you how you can get out of that circumstance using these first two Columbo questions. By the way, um, when this is happening... Uh, who is in control of the conversation? You or the other person? The other person. You're like, whoa, what just, what's hitting me right now? You know? Okay. So here's, here's how you deal with this. We're going, we, we're going to have you change from persuasion mode, immediately switch to information gathering mode. Okay? You're going to switch to information gathering mode. And you're going to practice um, what I call uh, verbal Aikido. Now, you know what Aikido is. That's that uh, martial art where you use the other person's energy against them. You don't oppose their energy. You make use of their energy. Who's the guy with the ponytail, the actor who does that? 
Steven, Steven Seagal, right? Okay, you're not supposed to know the answer to that question. Right? But, <laughs> that nasty Steven Seagal. But he, you know, he's all relaxed and everything. The bad guy charges at him, you know, and he hardly moves anything. But the guy flies by and he just kind of does one of these things. And, and then you hear this cracking and popping and the guy hits the wall and, you know, it's all over with. And he hasn't broken a sweat. That's Aikido, yeah. So that's what I want you to do, in a sense, conversationally. What we're not going to do is to try to fight back. We are not going to try to oppose them. You can't beat this guy. You're outmatched. That's the whole point of this, right? So what you're going to do is you're going to say something like this. Wow, you know more about this than I do. You know more about this than I do. I wonder if uh, you can do me a favor. Can you slow down a little bit and just let me get a piece of paper. I want to be clear on your view here. And I want to know two things, basically. And you could word this any way you want, but I want to know what your view is, and how you came to that conclusion. Now, so those are, you recognize that, those two questions? What are those are two Columbo questions, right? How'd you come to that conclusion? And, and then you just get poised, and then you're just listening. And the other person now is going to talk, but they're going to talk a little slower, and they're going to lay it out for you a little clearer, and you're inviting them to destroy your view. What? You're inviting them to destroy your view. You're inviting them to lay it on you. Yes, you are. Why? So you can get an education. You're listening. You're, it's like you're saying, oh, you want to beat me up? Okay. Just do it slowly <laughs> and thoroughly, please. <laughs> right? Okay. And, and, and by the way, when you do that, who is now in control of the conversation? You or the other guy? You are. The Christian who says, slow down, tell me what you believe and why you believe it, I'm, I'm in charge now. Now, I'm sitting at his feet, you know, old grasshopper, you know, riddle me this Batman kind of thing. It doesn't matter because I'm in control of it. Now I'm going to get the relevant information. I already know I can't deal with it. I just want to get it clearly so that later on I can deal with it. So once I get it clearly, once that's all explained, then I say, thank you. Let me think about it. Let me think about it. Now, them's the magic words, because when you say, then let me think about it, I got I to gotta think about that. There's, you made some good points. Let me give that some thought. Do you have any obligation at that point to give any further response to the challenges that he just offered you? No, of course, you just said, I'm stupid, you're smart, I know nothing. Well, i got to think about this. It's a compliment to him, basically, in that conversation. And then what do you do after that? I'll tell you what you do. You do what you said you're going to do. You think about it. Now you've got it down black and white, you've got the notes, then you go back and on your own, at your leisure, when the pressure is off, you give some thought. You're going to have to get some resources. You can go to the internet. You can go to str.org and Google something, if some challenge that he's offered. There's lots of places out there, books and the like. We've got stuff on the table where you can do some research but get answers to that issue because then next time it comes up, you're, going, you're not going to be caught by surprise because you have done your due diligence. You will have prepared properly. You're ready. And I know some of you are thinking, gee, that's a lot of work. Yes! We are in a serious conflict here. It's the battle for ideas. 
and ideas work a certain way. And the other side has bad ideas, and our side has good ideas, but we have to be able to demonstrate that the bad ideas are bad in a fair way. And we have to demonstrate how good our ideas are in a fair way if we are going to make a difference and have, make an impact. And that's just the way it is nowadays. And there's very, in many cases, maybe most cases, that's what we're up against. Now, some people are going to be easy, and they just seem to, you know, respond, but the, you know, the easy pickings, I think, are largely gone in our culture. It just isn't that way anymore. So this is what we have to face if we are going to fulfill the Great Commission. It's just the way it is right now. And I don't think it's going to get better. I think it's going to get worse. Um, I don't know if you, well, I, I don't have time to go on a wild goose chase. Okay, there's two uses of Colombo. Let me talk about the third use of Colombo. <laughs> We talked about reversing the burden of proof. We talked about uh, uh, professor's ploy and, and getting out of the, uh, the, the hot seat using those same questions. I want to talk about the third use of Colombo very, very briefly. And again, I, I want to emphasize, I, I hope that you get this book. Now, we have more copies back there, but it's, it's, the, it's the best $15 you'll ever spend to be a, a more articulate spokesperson for for the cause of Christ. It's, I promise you, it's the, you will not regret the money you spend here. If you read it, you got to read it, all right? It's like the guy who joined the health club, and he said, I joined it, I was, I was a member for three months, and nothing changed. I hadn't lost any weight, I hadn't gotten any healthier, and I suddenly realized, I have to actually go to that place. You know, I, I can't just give them the money, I got to go and work out, but with the same token. In fact, the last chapter here is titled, More Sweat, Less Blood. More sweat, less blood, because of the Marine Corps adage, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle, all right? So you got you to gotta sweat in training, or else you're gonna, they're gonna, the, the other side's going to draw blood. Uh, this little CD is the two-step. It's a 45-minute two-step. This talk, I think, is the one I gave at Saddleback. Um, so um, please get that. I have two copies up here, too. If you run out over there, you can use these. Um, the third use of Columbo... Um, to put, put simply, I say it a little differently in the book, but the simplest way to put it is you're using questions to make a point. You're using questions to make a point. You're using questions to make a point. Now, where the first two uses of Columbo, you didn't need to know anything. You just asked the question. You're gathering information of, of two different kinds. In the case of the third use of Columbo, you've got to know something in order to in, in order to use it. That is, if you're going to make a point, you've got to know what point you're going to try to make. So it, you, you think, of, think of it like a, a target. You're using arrows to shoot at the target. Your questions are your arrows, and the target is the point you're trying to make. So you have to have this clear in your mind. Now, sometimes the point you're going to try to make is you're going to try to make, you're going to try to express your own view, but use questions to get there. So this is the first kind of way that you use questions to make a point. You're going to express your own view. So I, I've written a book on, on relativism called Relativism. Um, <laughs> simple titles, you know, book on tactics, tactics, all right. You can write a book on God? Yeah, God. Well, <laughs> make it easy. Um, and I was asked to come to Barnes & Noble to do a, a talk as the author. In people, they put chairs in the aisle there in the bookstore, and, and I did my deal. And uh, afterwards, a gentleman came up to me, and he asked a question, and he said, why, uh, he said, why do I have to believe in Jesus? 
He said, I'm Jewish, I believe in God, and I try to live a good life. Why do I need Jesus? Now, this is a very important question, and it's very important that Christians be able to answer it. And most Christians cannot give a clear response because the Bible says. That's not what he's asking. He knows what the Bible says. He wants to know why it's that way. All right? So I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, go ahead. I said, do you think that people who commit moral crimes ought to be punished? People who do bad things, should they be punished for that? He said, well, since I'm a prosecuting attorney, yeah, I agree with that one. <laughs> now, I didn't know he was an attorney. I got lucky on that. But most, well, most people have the sense that if you do bad things, you've got to pay for it, right? You let the criminal off scot-free. Wait a minute. That's not right. Okay. So I said, I agree with you. Okay. Now, we, got a, we, got a, we have a piece of information on the table now. We got a piece of information that he has affirmed. In fact, it, it came from him. He put it, yes, I agree to that. Fine. Okay, it's there. Second question Have you ever done anything wrong? Now, I didn't say it that way because that would be a little bit odd. Have you ever done anything? You know, I'm just kind of keeping you awake here a little bit with this uh, histrionics, but no, I'm just having a normal conversation. So, if you, you think people who do bad things ought to be punished, have you done anything bad? Well, now, this is more personal, isn't it? But it's okay because we're, it's a friendly conversation. I'm just trying to, to answer his question. And, he, and what do you think he said, by the way? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I guess I have. And I, and I said, so have I. Now, look at where we've come just in two... I, I pointed this out to him. I said, look at where we came just in two questions. He said, we both agree that those who do bad things ought to be punished, and we both agree that we have done those things, Right? Yeah, I guess so. I said, you know what I call that? He said, what? I said, bad news. <laughs> bad news. That's the bad news. People who do bad things should get punished, and we've done bad things. This is not good. By the way, do I have to tell this man he's a sinner? Why not? He just told me. Do I have to tell him he's under judgment? No, he just told me. Now, he wasn't thinking about it when he walked into the Barnes & Noble, was he? But when I asked these questions, these, these things that were part of him, built into him, his awareness of moral, foundational moral principles, his awareness of the appropriateness of justice, his awareness of his own fallenness, when I asked the question, these came right to the surface, and he laid it right there on the table. Now, he didn't know where we were going with it, but it's going to be really hard for him now to deny those things when he's already put them on the table. Now, how did he get him to put them on the table? I asked him questions. I'm asking for things. I'm building a case, right? So I'm asking for things. And they're giving me these things. They don't know where I'm going with it. But I'm not tricking them. I'm not cheating them. I'm not doing some fancy thing to twist the truth. I'm just laying it out there. And then I point to what the consequence is. And the consequence of those two things is that we're in trouble. It's as if God, it's as if God is about to, the judge is about to lower the gavel, and he believes in God, right? And he believes in being good and justice, the whole deal. Lower the gavel on us, and we're in the dock, and we know we deserve what we're getting. By the way, why am I talking about judges and in the dock and the gavel and all of that? He's an attorney. I'm talking his language, and it's also biblical language when it comes to this kind of thing. So I'm trying to know how to respond to each person. Back to Colossians 4 again. I'm trying to speak his language. 
Just like yesterday, I'm trying to speak the chemist language as much as I'm able. I'm staying within his thing. Here, I'm talking this way. And, and we, God's about to lower the gavel, and he pauses, and he says, by the way, you two guys, you two guilty guys, are you interested in a pardon? Like a clemency, does that forgiveness sound appealing right about now? Sure. This is the point, by the way, of giving the bad news first. Because if you don't give the bad news first, the good news isn't good news. If you don't get to the bad news, you have no good news to tell. And just telling people that Jesus loves them is not what the disciples told the people when they communicated the gospel. Not a single time, by the way, in the book of Acts. They gave the bad news first. In fact, the word love does not appear in the book of Acts anywhere. Look it up. That it was not the message they communicated. Now, is the love of God manifest there? Sure, of course it is. Did Jesus talk about the love of God? There's John chapter 3. It's already there. But, the, but they gave the bad news before the good news to make the good news good. The fact is what the disciples talked more about was that, you know, God's kind of mad at you guys. And so uh, here's the way to straighten it out. Jesus is the rescue plan. And that's what I told, then I explained to the attorney that God has, we're in trouble and we're guilty, and, and, like, and but God is offering us a pardon and he's making it possible because he became a man himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he took upon himself the penalty for our crimes against God. He took our rap sheet on himself. By the way, it says that in Colossians 2. The, use, the term it uses is certificate of debt. But he took our certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross. So Jesus took our crimes, and this is what I'm telling the guy. So I'm explaining my point of view, having used questions to get him committed to certain things to make my point of view compelling. Now, sometimes people have asked, whatever happened to the attorney in Barnes & Noble? And I tell them, I don't know. I never saw him again after that. I lit him on to somebody else. The Lord took him away, and that was the end of him. As far as I was concerned, he's in God's hands. But I gave him... Now, what did I do then, by the way? I gave him the gospel, didn't I? Because that was a circumstance where it was completely appropriate to lay it out that way. But I did it carefully, and I didn't use a lot of spiritual mumbo-jumbo that he wouldn't understand. I didn't throw a lot of spiritual noise, or religious noise at him in Christian slogans. I explained it in common sense language that he could understand. And then I let it sit with him, and I'll let him deal with it. So there's a, there's, there's a case where I, I'm using my questions to explain my point of view. If you have a chance to talk with somebody about spiritual things, try to find questions. Think of questions you might ask them to get some content to surface that you might use. Instead of declaring it to them, well, of course, you know we all sin, right? And we all do things that are wrong. And, of course, then we are under God's judgment. Well, I'm preaching at the guy then. But if I ask him a question... With a pretty good idea, I know what the answer is going to be. If I ask it properly, then he gets in touch with it. Then that makes my job a lot easier. So you follow the point there. Okay? You're, I'm, using, I'm using questions to kind of help explain my view. Here's the second way to use questions. You can use questions to... Ex in the second way to use questions in the third use of Colombo. That is, you make a point by um, trying to, to exploit a weakness or a flaw. Exploit a weakness or or a flaw. But you're going to exploit it by using a question. Now, of course, you've got to see the flaw. If you don't see what's wrong, then you can't point it out with a question. 
And seeing what's wrong is something that just kind of comes with practice and education and, and exposure to this stuff. So uh, when I was talking with the witch in Wisconsin, for example, um, she, she said that uh, incest was a, a, an appropriate reason to kill a baby. And so I trotted out the toddler. I said, okay, I got a two-year-old conceived by incest. Is, on your view, is it okay to kill this two-year-old? Now, I'm asking a question, right? But I've, I think she's got a point of view that's, that's compromised, and I'm going to use the question to help her to see that, all right? And that's what happened. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I got to think about that. Gee, ah, I guess I have a mixed feelings. You got a point there, you know, kind of thing. So I made some progress with the question. But I knew the problem, and so I was going to try to find a question that would provide that. I was talking to a, a young man um, once about m morality. Well, he was a, a physical therapist, and, and I was getting some work done on my back. This is a long time ago. And um, he was a nice, easygoing guy, and he believed, uh, not like me, but he thought, you know, Christians are okay. Uh, and so we're talking about stuff. And, and then the issue of homosexuality came up. He brought it up. I didn't. And he did not like what I had to say as he's asked me my view about this. And he said, the problem with Christians is they start getting judgmental. Okay, now I just want you to think about this for a second. The problem with Christians is that they start getting judgmental. Does anybody see a problem with that? See, you know, is there a little weakness or a flaw maybe surfacing? Now, I, chances are you would not have noticed this before this weekend, but since we're kind of talking about this, and now you're trying to be more alert to these things, all of a sudden you're thinking, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, see, I saw this right away, and so, but I wanted to make it more obvious, and so I'm going to draw him out just a little bit more. You know, it's kind of like, kitty, 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 kitty. You know, what are these things at the club behind? Kitty, kitty, kitty. So, um, so I said, well, his name was Gil, and I said, well, what's wrong with that, Gil? And he said, well, it's wrong to judge. Okay, so there it is. And I said, Gil, if it's wrong to judge, then why are you judging me right now? Now, Gil had never heard anything like that before. And it really caught him by surprise. And so he's back, he backs up, and he's, he's thinking about what I said and what he had said. And he's scratching his chin a little bit. You know, I can hear him kind of muttering under his breath as he's kind of trying to figure out a way out, you know. No, no, that won't work. Yes, no, no, no. All right, he says, I, I, I guess I was judging you. Um, hmm. I guess it's okay to judge. That's what he said. <laughs> but, he said, this whole account is in the relativism book there. I tell the story there. I said, I said, he says, but you can't push your morality on other people. If you push your morality on other people, then you cross the line. Now, what he thought is, is that he had just repaired his mistake. You know, had he made any progress? No, because I had another question for him. And I said, Gil, is that your morality? This idea that it's wrong to push your morality on other people, is that your moral point of view? And he said so blithely, God bless him, yes, like he didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah, that's my point of view. Well, then why are you pushing your morality on me right now? Oh, yeah. Uh, God, it's just... So he's back in the corner rubbing his head. He makes a couple of false starts, and he can't get going. And then he gets real frustrated. And he says, well, it's, it's not fair. I said, what do you mean it's not fair? He said, well, I can't find a, a way to say it, which it sounds right. He thought I was playing a word trick on him or something. I said, Gil, it doesn't sound right because you're doing the very thing you're telling me not to do. You know, it's just contradictory. It's a suicide, basically, is what you're doing. And um, 
you know, and uh, at, I've done this a number of times, uh, just these same kind of questions, and, and sometimes people will go, well, now you got me all confused. <laughs> I say, no, 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 you were confused when you started. <laughs> but there's an example, and I, I have a lot more. I just don't have a lot more time. I'm actually over just a little bit now. That's a, an example of how to use questions to, uh, to exploit a weakness or a flaw. And in the book, I have lots and lots and lots of real examples of the way this works. And uh, when I go into other tactics, like taking the roof off and suicide and just the facts of man and the like, I also tell these stories where I've integrated the Colombo tactic to employ this additional tactic. So um, these other tactics help you to find the flaw, basically. It helps you to find what's wrong with somebody's point of view. Uh, if you want to improve on your Colombo, just, just try to think of questions in advance. Try to think of questions in advance. Or maybe after you're done and you think, oh my gosh, man, I make a fool out of myself. Gee, I wonder how I could have improved that. Okay? You can think of things when the pressure's off, and the pressure's off either before or after. And, and that's when you try to come up with, well, I should have said this. Okay, well, remember that for the next time it comes up. Kind of rehearse it a little bit with yourself or in the car or wherever or with a, another Christian friend. You do role play it a little bit and practice it. I do this all the time, especially if I have a debate coming up. I think if he says this, I'm going to say that. If he says this, I, I can ask that question. I can do that. Okay, so I'm ready for that. I'm not going to be caught by surprise. No, I sometimes am caught by surprise. And I sometimes make a mess of it. I just want you to know that. So there's a process of, 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 uh, of learning to do this. But I promise you, if you begin to employ the, the first two uses of Colombo, you ask questions to gather information. What do you mean by that? You ask questions to reverse the burden of proof. How did you come to that conclusion? You're getting into the batter's box. You're going to be amazed at how easy and natural it becomes and how relaxed you can be as you're gathering this kind of information. And every once in a while, you're going to see an opportunity. You're going to see an opening, and you're going to use a number three question to kind of move forward and see what happens. You'd be amazed at how many times you just decide to get into the batter's box, and you get a hit, and you get on base, and you move the whole enterprise along as a, a follower of Christ. i I, I got to stop talking now. We're going to have some Q&A here for another 20 minutes, but I just feel so badly because there's so many more things I want to say about this. I've, we've just kind of you know, got the tip of the iceberg, but I know you guys have the DVD, and maybe you'll have another class of training. You guys did it two years ago. Um, and, uh, uh, and I hope, like I said, you get the book. Incidentally, uh, this little book that you'll also find on the, on the shelf over there on the table, uh, Jesus the Only Way, 100 verses. This issue of Jesus being the only way is just front and center. Right now it's being just a little bit eclipsed by the homosexual issue, but they're similar because non-Christians we're, we think we're arrogant and narrow-minded and intolerant and bigoted because of this claim as well. And when I answer this claim, I always do it the same way. It's not my idea. It's Jesus' idea. He's the guy who said it, and he said it a bunch of times, a bunch of ways. And so did every single person that Jesus trained to follow after him. Incidentally, I don't tell people the Bible says. Because when you say the Bible says, it just annoys them. It doesn't have a good impact on them. I don't say the Bible says. I say Jesus said, because it's Jesus saying it recorded in the Bible. And people don't like the Bible, but they like Jesus. So since Jesus is the one who's saying it, you let them know. 
It's more persuasive. And when it comes to the epistles and other things where it's not Jesus, it's the disciples who have written it, I characterize it this way, the way I just did. All the people who Jesus personally trained to follow after him, they said the same thing.